So there are times when we're a part of playing politics when the uh, news happens either during the broadcast or just before, and this is one of those times. John Rash and Scott Gillespie here from the Star Tribune, Chad Hartman from WCCO Radio, and John, we just were watching this. The president, in the last 10 minutes, saying immediately he is grinding the 737 MAX 8 and 9 jets. This is in light of two separate plane crashes. The most recent, Ethiopia, killing well over 150 people. 40-plus countries have made this decision. Canada did in the last hour. As I said in the previous segment, it was very different from what the White House, the message they seemed to be sending out in the previous 24 hours, that we're monitoring the situation, that we're talking to people, but we're leaving it to others involved. What do you think about how the way the president has stepped in about in, in – the limited amount of information we have at this point. That he likes to appear to be decisive, and he seemed that way yesterday, regardless of how one agrees or disagrees with the initial decision not to ground these. And reportedly, it was a, partly a result of a phone call from the CEO of Boeing. And yep. President Trump, of course, is quite uh, forthright in terms of his relationships with other CEOs in American business and trying to take their side. And now that he's reversed course, it makes him look less decisive. That doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. Perhaps he got more information. Perhaps some of the pressure from those involved in the aviation industry, both on the labor side in terms of pilots and you know other safety advocates. And given the international interconnectedness of our transportation system, I think that it might have become a de facto grounding anyway. I think that's a great point. If you have so many nations, especially our neighbor to the north, saying that they're not going to allow these planes to fly. Yeah. I think it was in- inevitable. So certainly I think those were probably factors as well. But but you think so by yesterday kind of backing away and today making the decision, you, you think it makes him less decisive? Because I would think this this gives the impression, hey, I'm the president. I'm stepping in. Because the pres- president's greatest responsibility, any of them, is the safety of citizens. And to me, people are going to say, okay, the president, whether you love him or detest him, is stepping in to try to better protect the citizens of this country. Again, this may be clearly the correct call, and if it is, certainly uh, the president deserves credit for that. But if he didn't do it yesterday, partly as a part of a well-publicized telephone call from the CEO of the company that stands to lose a significant amount of money, that's something that people may have a question or two about. All that being said, if indeed the administration has more information now, and this is the the clear right call in terms of the security of the American people, then that's what presidents should do. And indeed, he did the right thing here. What do you think, Scott? The political and and moral risk, if you make the wrong call and a plane goes down uh, after you've made the decision to let them continue to fly, is really extraordinary. And I think outweighs the uh, complexity of... uh, and the and the uh, mayhem that might be caused to the flight schedules here over the next several days because of because these planes aren't going. Uh, you're 100 percent right too. If and I said my personal view, we had this debate off air. You know, as of the information I had yesterday, I said I would still defer to the United States and the FAA and the NTSB. And I believe because I I'm not in that exact scenario, but I believe I would have flown one of the planes. 
But let's say you are, in this case, <clears throat> President Trump, and you come out today and say, I believe in Boeing, I believe in the FAA, and something happens. And, it, and, and it's some information that, that, let's say, the president had no access to. It wasn't that he dismissed it, but he had no access. And, Scott, your scenario, something happens, almost anybody's presidency, forget whether it's Donald Trump or it's George Washington, right? Um, it would be over. Even emergency landing, uh, but certainly any kind of crash, uh, it'd be, it would be. It'd be a stain that you could absolutely not remove from your presidency. Yeah. Um, let's get other items. Uh, let's, I want to get to Representative Omar again, John. I'm, I'm going to bring up a couple points. One was a letter to the editor to the paper yesterday. And the letter to the editor yesterday made the comparison to Paul Wellstone the first few months. He wins. He pulls off the upset over Rudy Boschwitz. And this is at a time when we're debating whether we're going to go to war. And then, and Paul Wellstone was everywhere, calling out then-President Bush, disagreeing with the Democrats. And there were a lot of Democrats who were saying, whoa, who is this guy? Well, then he became a two-term senator without the plane crash. I think the data shows he was about to be a third-term some people think what's taking place within the party is a reflection of where Paul Wellstone stood, you know, 19 years ago. So can we make the comparison that maybe Representative Omar might be looking at that model? Because, again, today another letter to the editor was from Walter Mondale. Indeed. Basically saying work within the system, right? Travel to Israel. Travel to Palestine, meet with these folks, work within what you have, and maybe you'll even be more effective. He wasn't saying, I'm not going to support you, but here's a way to even be a better congresswoman. And indeed, Representative Omar, who anyone who has interviewed and, and had a chance to hear speak, regardless of one, whether one agrees with her politics or not, is quite a bright person and may have a very good learning curve in terms of the ability to make a mid-course correction or an early course correction, considering she's only been in Congress a couple of months at this point. A couple of key differences, however, is that when Senator Wellstone made his initial comments that were considered quite controversial, it was regarding the United States going to war yep. and not something that was interpreted you know, as in any way anti-Semitic or bigoted in, in any respect. And that's how some people, of course, have interpreted some of the serial uh, uh, comments that Representative Omar has made. We also live in a profoundly different media environment. Yes. And these transcendent technologies that we all take for granted now barely existed in, at the beginning of Senator Wellstone's right. career. And, and the way that it's been amplified on 24-7 cable news and social media and the infinite Internet echo chamber really makes a difference between the, the two politicians. But I will say that visuals counted then, too, and... If you recall, Senator Wellstone made his comments uh, in, about the Iraq War, these particular comments, at the Vietnam War Memorial. Yes, that's a, a good reminder. You know, sacred ground for, yep. I think, all Americans. They should be anyway. And had he confined, confined those remarks to a news conference or on even on the Senate floor, far different yep. uh, than going out in front of the, the Vietnam uh, War Memorial, and having video of that, yep. uh, which circulated at the time along with still photography. So John's right. It would have been amplified in the social media era, but that visual 
really hurt him. Let's let's combine President Trump and Representative Omar, and I'll start with you, Scott. Um, the president certainly, through Twitter and meetings, has picked up on some of Representative Omar's comments that, to a lot of people, were con- uh, controversial. To a lot of people, myself included, some of those comments, I believe, were absolutely anti-Semitic. And to the point where he went to an event where there were numerous people on the record where the president said the Democratic Party is now a party of people who hate Jews, right? right. Uh, which is, first of all, it's ridiculous. That, that's, I think that's the view of, of most. And, and, I, and I watched some of the question the other day to Sarah Sanders, and I think some people made some really good points on when we had Charlottesville. And we had people who are white supremacists, who are skinheads, Mm -hmm. who are saying Jews will not replace us. But you did also have some who who were there um, having the debate about monuments. Mm -hmm. But because the headline was the, the, the killing of a young woman and the headline was these disgusting people, Jews will not replace us. So when the president said there were very fine people on both sides, I think a lot of us are like, really? So then say all of a sudden, because you disagree with one representative, mm-hmm. that means everybody within that party is the same thing. It's, it just yeah. doesn't hold up at all. He's using his own words, they don't match up at all. No, and that isn't the first time. No, and it uh, won't be the last time. Right. And I, I yeah, for whatever reason, the, the president thinks that right now using Ilhan Omar in this way is very politically uh, beneficial to him. Yep. And uh, whether he thinks that he can maybe capture uh, some some additional Jewish support, uh, either in terms of contributions or votes, I don't know, or whether it's simply to uh, make the base feel good about attacking a Muslim wo- woman, I don't know. Yeah. John? I want to quickly pick up on a comment my colleague Scott just made here in terms of perhaps using Representative Omar as a symbol of how he wants at minimum his base, Republican supporters, to perceive the Democratic Party. And right now, the three most, among the three most prominent faces of the Democratic Party are Representative Omar, Representative Ocasio-Cortez out of New York, who's become Mm -hmm. a lightning rod and a superstar at the same time, and of course, Senator Sanders, who has announced his candidacy. So you have three people who are perceived as on the far left of the spectrum, at least two of them self-proclaimed democratic socialists. And that fits right into the Republicans and President Trump's narrative of elections are choices. When they have these polls, we've talked about on Playing Politics so many times about whether people would would be willing to reelect the president. It's against a blank slate Democrat. When you start putting in a choice between President Trump and whomever he's going to run in, run against you know, then people perhaps may answer differently. And, you know, it shouldn't be forgotten that the historic gains in the House of Representatives by the Democrats were generally won in swing suburban yes. districts, much more That's by a representatives very good like Dean Phillips as yep. opposed to Ilan Omar. And yet, if they project these new faces as this is what the party's all about, Republicans think that's advantageous for them. This is a CNN scoop in the last hour or so. Uh, a Trump, uh, obviously Rudy Giuliani, but an attorney who was working with them, okay, said this. There was never any doubt they are in a corner. Rudy said this communication channel must be maintained. He called a crucial, noted how 
reassured they were that they had someone like me, whom Rudy had known for so many years in his role, sleep well tonight. You have friends in high places. Costello ended the email, and he sent that to Michael Cohn. Sent that to Michael Cohn. So do I believe every word Michael Cohn says? Obviously not. I don't believe every word Donald Trump says. But we have an, an email now tied to the president's main attorney, Scott, reaching out to Michael Cohen saying, don't worry. Don't worry. You're in, the, you're in the legal meat grinder right now, but don't forget who you have. So when the president's sitting there saying, we never reached out, there was no talk of pardon again, you know, this is pretty definitive information. Yes, they did. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I agree with you on unbelievability uh, of the uh, first two folks you mentioned, and I would add Rudy Giuliani yeah. to the mix. Um, yeah. That would be the third. Uh, certainly uh, that email would uh, – no one would read it otherwise. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, hint at uh, a pardon, and, and, yep. uh, and, and you know, that's, that's very significant news. Yeah. It and, could be obstruction of justice evidence as well, theoretically. Right. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Now, speaking of that, the Speaker of the House recently, days ago, basically said, Donald Trump, impeachment, he's not worth it. And everybody had their own interpretation of that. You know, uh, is it too soon for her to say that? Should we be waiting for a Mueller report? Should we be waiting for her own House continue to conduct the investigation. There are many conservatives and Trump supporters, John, who read that and said, you know why she's saying that? They've got nothing on the president. How surprised were you that she said it? And how did, how did those comments play out over the next days, weeks, and months? Was not surprised it was her sentiment, surprised how she framed it. She's very media and political savvy. And when you say he's not worth it, that's going to be the key takeaway. She did, in her longer answer, frame it in the context of unless it's something that's overwhelming that yes. can get bipartisan support. And that has been the longstanding position of Speaker Pelosi and as well as several in leadership of the Democratic Party. And I think that if she had to do it over again, she might have put that into context. So it was indeed interpreted by many Republicans as they know nothing's really coming here. Yep. But it also, you know, there there's certainly are some who think that the president relishes an impeachment fight because, you know, that's usually how he is most combative and he thinks he connects with yeah. the American public much more in that basis. And we need to look back at just at the 2016 campaign and how he conducted his candidacy and that perhaps he can make this a center, you know, piece of, of how he runs for reelection. And to, so to some degree, it takes some of the steam out of that, although it certainly steamed up a lot of Democrats, you know, who had been pushing for impeachment early, including some freshman legislators. Well, Scotty also has enough people around him, and he's savvy enough that knows when Bill Clinton was going through impeachment, his numbers jumped. Yeah. They went up, and he might look at that and say, guess what? Right. Everything that John just said is right, and maybe yeah. my numbers will go up, and that'll help me to try to win That's right. the next election. Yeah. Speaker Pelosi and, and other leaders in the Democratic Party, Party may well be buying into the idea that it would be better to let the president— uh, boil, so to speak, put him in boiling water from now until the election, but not take that extra step of a starting impeachment process. Again, barring something in the Mueller report or elsewhere that comes up that that's just overwhelmingly uh, clear where you could actually get Republican votes for impeachment yeah. and it would be a productive process. But for the Democrats now to launch an impeachment that they know isn't going to work, um, 
I, I think that's actually politically uh, astute of her not to not to do that. John, we got about a minute before we have a hard break here. The president speaking as we're talking again, saying he has no thoughts on a possible Paul Manafort pardon. More sentencing for Manafort today. I think a lot of us still believe maybe maybe saying that, but that the chances are very high that Paul Manafort gets a pardon. And perhaps the reason he's saying he has no thought about it is the thought was taken away by the state of New York, which brought yeah. uh, Mr. Manafort up on a significant slew of charges yep. right after this second uh, sentence was announced this afternoon. And, of course, the president may pardon Mr. Manafort in terms of his federal crimes, but yep. not state crimes. So yep. he may not take that politically damaging step because it would be ineffective anyway if yep. he's convicted by the state of New York. Absolutely. Very good points. Enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. John Rash and Scott Gillespie from the Star Tribune, playing politics, available to you multiple ways. Hopefully you listen to it right here live on CCO. You can also check it out, startribune.com and wccoradio.com.